It's salty, it's got bite, and it's better than a two-martini lunch. Broadcasting live from the WGST studios in Atlanta, it's the Dana Barrett Show. And it starts right now. All right, it is the Dana Barrett Show. It is Tuesday. Can you believe August is almost over? And it's been weirdly, like, chilly again in the mornings. Like, fall is almost here. What? It's crazy. Something's going on, because I feel like normally this time of year, it's still really hot here. And I feel like it's been sort of cool the last couple of days. No? Nick, you disagree? Are you saying climate change? Should I just put words in your mouth now? Nick has no, said- No, climate change. Sorry. <clears throat> I was choking. Oh, don't yes. choke. Climate change. <laughs> <laughs> yes, climate change. Uh, interesting. Well, we're going to talk about, obviously, all the political stuff and- um, the uh, Amazon rainforest and all the situation going on there a little bit later in the show. You know, there's a lot of fires burning there and and some of them are thought to have been set. Um, but I also, I mean, of course, a part of me is like wondering, is it just drier there than normal? How, why is this happening? I don't know. Look, we're going to get to all of that. But I feel like the big news um, today is in the uh, opioid crisis story. Uh, Johnson & Johnson, the, you know, huge pharmaceutical company, has been ordered to pay $572 million, almost ha- more than half a billion, sorry, dollars, for its role in Oklahoma's opioid crisis. So that's just one state. Now, it's also just one courtroom, just one judge, and they will appeal the decision. So, you know, at the end of the day, um, it's not the end of the day. And we won't know what, you know, ultimately will be what they pay and where this goes from here for probably years. It's going to continue on. But it is also uh, a precedent setter in a way and and a landmark in a way, because this is the first time that a drug maker has been held accountable for um, this you know, opioid crisis. And I've been listening uh, over the course of, uh, of last night and today to a lot of the back and forth about um, whose fault it really is and what did they do and why, you know, you know, the people defending them, their attorneys explaining why they don't believe that they are responsible uh, and those who believe that they are responsible. And it brings me to, I think, um, just a conversation of ethics and right and wrong. And I, I feel like Johnson & Johnson, uh, unfortunately, has been on the wrong end of that conversation multiple times now as it relates to death. I mean, it's one thing to be unethical as it relates to, you know, a business deal and where somebody loses a little bit of money. But when you're dealing with drugs and um, products that affect people's lives, I mean, I think it's imperative that you have the highest ethical standards and that those standards come above any desire to profit. Um, We've been really mad over the years at Wells Fargo for their um, greedy treatment of, you know, black people, for an example, um, veterans, for an example. And, you know, while all of that was egregious and wrong and horrible and really did ruin um, some people's financial lives, the stuff that Johnson & Johnson is, again, I mean, you know, I, I can't even, I don't even feel like I have to say alleged anymore because they have been found by a court to be guilty of this. Um, but the things that they're being accused of are not ethical. So even if um, they appeal and, you know, their their fine ends up being reduced or whatever, uh, when you think about some of the practices, which I'll get into here in just a second, you have to ask yourself how they slept at night. Because, for example, the, they knew, I mean, I think we've all known for a long time there's an addiction problem and that opioids are addictive. I mean, I, I'll just take it back to pop culture for a second because, I mean, did you ever watch the TV show House, New Guy Nick? Oh, of course. Right. Of and course. he was popping pills. Yeah. And he, he was addiction. addicted. Yep. And, you know, caused all kinds of problems in his life. And and with his medical license and, you know, in whatever. And that was years ago. So it's not like we didn't, and, and you know, and we knew it before that. So it's not like this just happened in the last two years. I mean, this is stuff that's been going on for a long time. We all knew about it. And uh, according to some of the testimony I was hearing today, uh, not only was Johnson & Johnson and their uh, affiliate or, you know, the company under their umbrella, Janssen, 
marketing the drugs, but they were marketing them such that they were saying things like, if a patient comes back uh, before their prescription runs out and asks for more, um, or if they ask to extend a prescription, or you know some of these signs that indicate an addiction, don't worry, they're not really addicted. They're what we call pseudo-addicted, and really it just means that you haven't given them enough medication to treat their pain. So you need to give them more opioids. So that is some of what's being said. And, you know, obviously I'm not reading this from the legal documents. I'm just paraphrasing what I've, you know, been hearing throughout the last 24 to 48 hours on this case. But if that's the case, that's really true. That is really bad. And so to incent their sales staff and their marketing staff um, on how much opioid a doctor prescribes that's the same as Wells Fargo demanding that they're, you know, holding their, their, you know, store people accountable for a certain number of accounts per person when the person doesn't need them. And this is exactly the same thing, except it's death, right? It's death. And so you're saying to your salespeople and your marketing people, get your doctors to prescribe more of this drug, even though you know that drug is killing people, essentially. And this is in large part, I think, you know, when you go back to the discussion of healthcare in this country and all the things that are wrong with it, I think there needs to be some regulation around the marketing and sale of prescription drugs. First of all, I don't think there should be any TV advertising for these things. I mean, that's my first thing. Which, by the way, is the law in like every other developed country in the world. Well, it used to be here. It got overwritten at some point <laughs> because I, I remember a time when you did not see that on the air. And now it's on the air all the time. And of course, the media, of which we are a part, does not want that to change because they make a lot of money taking uh, ads from pharmaceutical companies. But I think, number one, that needs to stop. There should be no more advertising anywhere to the consumer about a prescription drug, period. It's not the consumer should not be making that decision. There should not be Internet advertising for it, print advertising, television, none of it. It needs to stop. Informational pamphlets at the doctor's office. The end. I think it's about fair. The same as like right cigarettes. You can you can't advertise them anywhere. But when you go into a gas station because they're there, you can advertise them there. Those kind of same restrictions would make sense, right? Yeah, sure. Although I might even argue that the doctor can hand you the pamphlets. It's fair. As opposed to them sitting in the waiting room. Right. Um, You know, if the doctor thinks you should take a certain drug, then they can hand you over additional materials on the two options of drugs for your condition. Fine. Um, And his recommendation or her recommendation along with it. But, you know, uh, I just think that that whole thing needs to be rethought. And, you know, the pharmaceutical companies spend a fortune not only on the advertising itself, but also on the marketing and or the sales teams, rather, that go and call on doctors and bring samples and all of that stuff. And again, I'm okay with them delivering some samples to a doctor um, and, and their information, but it, there needs to be some restriction on that. And they, you know, if they're going to have a team like that, again, I don't think that they need to be responsible for how much the doctor prescribes. Because at the end of the day, that's not healthy. And at the end, you know, consumer is the patient. We should not be taking extra drugs because some salesperson convinced some doctor that it was the right thing to do. I mean, it's just wrong across the board. And so when we look at healthcare and we talk about, you know, these um, polarizing decisions about healthcare, you know, Medicare for all versus fix Obamacare versus trash Obamacare and start over or whatever, we are not really talking about the full breadth of the problem, unless we not only talk about the price of pharmaceutical drugs, but we talk about why they cost so much and how they spend their money. Because yes, R&D is a huge cost. I get that. But so is sales and marketing. And if they cut that cost out of what they're doing or eliminated it way down and, you know, doctors had to go to medical conferences to learn about uh, drug options and those things were taught by scientists, not salespeople, we'd be talking about a whole different ball game. We should not be throwing pharmaceuticals at every problem we have. We just should not. And we are. And why are we doing that? Because we're treating it like a straight up business selling widgets. And it is not that. I know we've had a couple doctors on the show over time, but here just in the last few months. And I know that the common consensus seems to be that in the medical field in general, 
there's too much of a focus on the symptoms and not the problem itself, right? Yeah. We have a full kind of health care issue right. down to its core. Yeah. And this is just the most glaringly lethal problem associated with it. Yeah. Especially as it relates to opioids and back bringing us all the way back to the specific case here against Johnson and Johnson and, you know, their business practices, which are that's what they're being accused of. It's not that they made the drug. It's that they oversold the drug. And, you know, and they didn't properly warn patients. They didn't properly warn doctors what this was capable of doing. And by the way, you know, it wasn't that long ago that they were fighting. And I think they probably still are fighting in courts. Uh, the whole issue about talcum powder causing cancer. And once again, you know, they knew uh, that there was a potential in certain cases and they didn't properly warn the consumer and people died. And so and they were held accountable. I mean, again, I'm not saying alleged here because they were found guilty in court. And so, you know, these are the kinds of questions. It's so interesting because it also really pings um, something else in my brain. And and I'll just do a little self-promotion here. But Nick and I are doing a podcast called Bizography. And we're looking at older companies, you know, iconic American companies. And we're looking at their histories and in many cases where they went wrong. In many cases, they went right. But in many of them, they started out as these ethically minded, you know, trustworthy, amazing couple of people who started something they really believed in. And, you know, fast forward, you know, 150 years and the company's gone to heck in a handbasket because they didn't codify that it needed to stay that way. And I suspect we haven't done research on Johnson & Johnson yet for bizography, but I feel like it's on my list now. Because when I was growing up, I thought of Johnson & Johnson as baby powder, like the wholesome company that used you all the products you use for babies. It's that lavender bath soap that puts them to sleep, right? Yeah. And the baby <laughs> oil. And the, it, was the, it was a very trusted brand. Yeah. And now, you know, the more and more you hear, you know, and, and the fact like who knew when I was growing up, I didn't know that they also owned, you know, all of these other companies that made all of these drugs. I mean, they were just the baby company to me. Um, and I'm sure to some many people, they still are. They don't realize how much other stuff they're involved in and how much else they own. But um, it's kind of sad that a company that I'm sure, you know, the original Johnson and Johnson were probably great guys who had, you know, the best of intentions to bring products to families that needed them. And now they're killing those people. They're killing the descendants of those families they took care of all those years ago. Right. Total speculation, but it's probably the same problem that's come with so many of the other companies we've looked at that went south. And it's, it's greed. Yeah. Somewhere along the line, they just got greedy and they just wanted to make more money. They didn't, they it's weren't the trying pro- to yeah. provide product to people out there like the Sears problem or, or you know, the Johnson & Johnson is, like you said, caring for families. Right. They lost sight of that. Right. It's, you know, it's 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 greed mixed with the, the pressures of the market and, and putting shareholders above all else. Um, and the same kinds of things we're seeing over and over and over again. And they don't, you don't, here's the thing that I think they all miss. When you focus on short-term growth and short-term gain, you lose in the long term. You end up in court paying half a billion dollars because you cheated or you blew it or you did something unethical. And here we are again. And it's just, it's just sad. And it's disheartening um, that this is the way our system is set up. I love the idea of no regulation in a perfect world. That'd be great. But we don't live in a perfect world, and we don't live in a world with a whole bunch of perfect people. We're all imperfect, and, you know, we feel the pressure of doing our jobs and making that money. And so, you know, here's where we end up, people. All right, on that note, speaking of where we end up, we've got to talk about those fires burning in the Amazon. We're going to do that with NBC News correspondent Michael Bauer right after this. Now back to the Dana Barrett Show here on WGST. It's been a little while now that we have been hearing about fires uh, in the Amazon uh, rainforests and, you know, what that could mean from a climate perspective, but also like maybe more importantly and more pressing right now, how to stop it from happening altogether. Somehow, I feel like there's no shock here. This has turned political. Joining us on the phone to dig into this whole story and uh, help us, um, no pun intended, catch our breath is NBC News radio correspondent Michael Bauer. Michael, what is the latest? 
Well, the latest is that we've got not just one big fire, but thousands of fires burning in Brazil, many of them in the Amazon rainforest, which is now doing kind of the opposite work that it had been doing for years, which is now sort of pumping out large, alarmingly large quantities of carbon into the world's atmosphere. And what's even perhaps more shocking than the fact that there are fires in a rainforest is that the word this morning out of Brazil is that the government there is rejecting more than $22 million that was pledged at the G7 summit to help fight the raging wildfires in Brazil. So unclear as to why they haven't given an official answer. They haven't provided a reason for refusing the money, but they are refusing the money. And right now it's unclear if Brazil would even allow anyone outside of Brazil to help fight the fires. In fact, the only comment that has come has come from President uh, Bolonsaro's chief of staff, who said, and this was the quote, we appreciate the offer, but maybe those resources are more relevant to reforest Europe. In other words, why don't you grow, take that money and grow some trees in Europe, and maybe that will help the entire problem, which is a disheartening way to respond to a fire that's been going on for the better part of two weeks into three weeks now, or fires that have been going on that long, and just destroying elements of what has been referred to as the lungs of the earth. Uh, you're talking about a particular rainforest, which is 60% of it lying in Brazil in the Amazon rainforest, but it is famous for its biodiversity of animals, plant life, insects, the trees there take the toxins in the air, some 2 billion tons of carbon dioxide, and give us the ability to breathe, which is kind of nice. Yeah. And then above and beyond that, you've got those same trees who, uh, through the release of water vapor, form this thick layer, kind of create some rain down there and uh, throughout the region that eventually moves across the earth. And if that rainfall cycle starts to collapse because you've got a fire that you can't put out or are choosing to not put out, then you're talking about droughts that could affect Uruguay, Paraguay, Argentina not to mention Brazil, and could devastate agriculture. So there's a whole bunch of concerns going on here, and apparently the president of Brazil just wants to play machismo guy and go, you know what, we don't need anybody's help. We don't need your stinking help here. So two uh, points to all of this that I'm sort of noticing. One is that there seems to be a little political spat between uh, Macron and Mm -hmm. Bolsonaro. And yeah. from what I'm reading, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like it's a relatively minor spat. Like, <laughs> Bolsonaro allegedly said something on Twitter or something somewhere about Macron's wife, or he forwarded a meme or something. And then Macron, like, sort of responded by saying maybe Brazil will get themselves an effective leader or something like that. I mean, it yeah, seemed pretty, right. like, you know, like, That's you're right a jerk, on. no, you're a jerk, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's third grade, I know you are, but what am I? And in the meantime, you've got an entire very important portion of your country that is on fire. It hasn't stopped so that you can point a finger and say, I know you are, so what am I? And in that particular case, Macron was one of the, the, the ones who jumped on board with this, let's get some money to take care of this. He saw this as an international crisis from the get-go. And Macron was also saying that Bolsonaro was somebody who was responsible for this. Because let's not forget, before Bolsonaro got into office in January, he was somebody who was creating campaign promises that indicated he was going to loosen protection for the Amazon rainforest, for the indigenous lands and nature reserves, so that businesses in Brazil could use that land to help the struggling economy by you know, creating some sort of an agricultural outlet or mining outlet of some kind. But he did it in a way that came across as just sort of a... I could care less about what it currently does, saying that he expressed a desire to protect the environment, but without creating difficulties for our progress. So he made that statement, kind of opening the door to the fact that we would, at some point in Brazil, they would take over the land, they would begin mining, they would begin doing something to make sure that they were getting out of their financial rut. And at least at this point in time, Bolsonaro is indicating that the fires that were set were not set by government on any sort of government organization. It could be people out outside of the government or smaller organizations or individuals that are trying to reclaim some of that land, but it's not anything according to him that they've done on a larger governmental level. It's kind of bizarre, the whole story. Um, the other thing I, I sort of think that I, I want to bring up here is that, what was it, you said it was about $22 million that was promised? Uh, yeah, it, it ranges now because, Dana, they actually, it was $22 million this morning, but then we had heard um, from Canada that they had upped their ante from like $9 million to $15 million. So we may have been getting closer to around $40 million uh, that the groups from the G7 were pulling together in order to offer, in addition to, um, like Canada saying, we're going to send a couple of our planes down there that fight fi- wildfires to uh, offer up their services for you as well. And it seems as though Brazil's saying, no, Moss, we don't want any of that. 
Yeah, the whole thing. Listen, the only reason I bring up the dollar amount here, Michael, is because I certainly acknowledge that if, you know, the G7 decided to send, you know, you and me and new guy Nick, you know, $22 million, we would be ecstatic. And that would absolutely we could figure out exactly how to spend that and how to divide it up. And we would be happy and no one would ever hear from us again. But never, never. But but I mean, the fact that that the G7, like basically seven of the richest nations in the world could only come up with 22 million seems like kind of paltry. For... That's a no, that's a good point. That is. And that's that's why I was like when I saw that number, I'm like, is, is that is that real? Did they pass around a hat? Like I literally yeah. felt like that was the pocket change that these G7 nations had at that meeting at that time where somebody's like, hold on, I think I got a buck 50 in the car. Let me go grab that. And then threw that into there. And that's what we <laughs> ended up with. But then to see that kind of jump up into the 40 million range, because let me a couple of different elements. We know, for instance, the UK was pledging 10 million dollars. We know uh, $9 million, anywhere between 9 and $15 million is what Canada was pledging. Even got Leonardo DiCaprio, the actor, pledging $5 million in aid. So there's all sorts of elements coming to the table, services and, and, and financial, and as well as, hey, we'll offer some of our firefighter services to help you out from all of these countries trying to help out Brazil. Now, granted, that is not billions of dollars, but that's a large amount of money, even if you got $40 million, to fight fires that have been going on for two and a half, almost three weeks now in Brazil. Listen, I'm not saying Brazil should turn it down. I'm just sort of like the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio can just chip in five (laughs) mil means that like if America really wanted to help, we could do a lot more than five million. That's all I'm saying. you got to attend some of the meetings that have to do with climate change, and so far that doesn't seem to be a big to-do list for the president right no, now. No. Oh, yeah, there is that whole thing. Just show up for the meeting, for goodness sakes. Yeah, right. um, and here's the other thing. Like, even for the G6 that showed up, it's like, look, yeah. y- you're spending money on, it's not like you're just helping Brazil here. Like, this is so you can breathe later? Like, you know, it's survival to some extent, but whatever, yeah. just pocket change is fine. Fine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the reality of all of this is is that you're looking at 60% of the rainforest lying in Brazil, right? And these trees that help you breathe, they create the water that is going to create rain and helps with vegetation all across the world, not just in Brazil. But in addition to that, you've got a guy who's running that area who's really expressly stated that this deforestation that's been happening there has been done so for the purposes of business, mm-hmm. trying to clear land for farming, ranching, or logging. Now, they are in the middle of their dry season, so there is a chance that you know regular sort of run-of-the-mill vegetation fires could spread more easily. But that doesn't explain this 85% increase in fires over last year's figure. You've got 40,000 wildfires across Amazon this year. That's 40,000 fires in less than five days, and that's an 85% rise over last year's figure. There's something different going on there, and that seems to indicate that there are going to be issues that will be felt long-term from the scientists. Are already indicating if you don't do something you're approaching a tipping point with the amazon right now which could irreversibly take what has been this wetland area what we believe a rainforest to be and turn it into a dry savanna if things don't change relatively quickly and in the meantime their president is pointing fingers saying na 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 boo boo at the french president and they're having that tiff back and forth right unbelievable listen michael always great to get your insight on all of these kinds of stories uh this one is just bizarre as far as i'm concerned i sort of feel like this is another like an outpouring to some extent of this move towards nationalism like if we're going to be all about each of us doing our own thing then brazil's going to do what it wants with a resource we all need unfortunately so uh, maybe we should go back to thinking globally just a suggestion you know i just make suggestions from time to time uh it is the dana barrett show it is tech tuesday don't go anywhere we'll be right back tech tuesday on the dana barrett show it is Tech Tuesday. It is the Dana Barrett Show. Um, there has been sort of a long-standing, let's call it a trend, in technology where, you know, uh, programmers and designers and people who know how to do stuff do it just because it's cool. Sometimes they're not actually creating products we need or want or will even use. Sometimes they're just creating stuff because it's cool. The problem is we don't always know the difference, but we're going to figure it out. And joining me for that conversation right now is Anastasia Simon. She is the managing director of Shadow Labs. Welcome. Hey, Dana. How are you? You know what? I am much better now that you're here. Awesome. Feeling good. (laughs) Um, All right. So listen, before we get into sort of that, you know, the topic a little bit, because I think this is always a struggle. We we can easily also, side note, be convinced we need something Mm -hmm. with some good marketing, right? Right. It's been a little bit of the theme of the show today. But 
Um, before we get to all of that, talk a little bit about Shadow Labs and about what you do. Okay. So Shadow Labs, we are a virtual incubator platform um, by Shadow Ventures. So Shadow Ventures, local Atlanta VC firm, focused on investing in seed stage uh, tech companies that are disrupting tech nascent markets. So markets that are super slow to adopt technology in a real meaningful way. Okay. And, and that could be across the board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just... For some odd reason, they are still doing things on pencil and paper, even though I haven't done math on pencil and paper since middle school, and I'm not that young. I feel like I asked some somebody <laughs> young recently if they even knew what a pencil was, and I was wait, joking, what? of course, but yeah. Wait, I was what? I was joking. <laughs> wait, <laughs> wait, 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 what's a pencil? <laughs> um, okay, so so in any nascent industry yes. is sort of what Shadow Ventures is interested in, and so that could be anything from like contractors out mm-hmm. who are you know building and they're still drawing on that pencil and paper to show yeah. a client a plan or to do their accounting yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, or it could be like a hair salon or anybody that's doing something yeah no there's a so, no She's, yes and a, no there's a yes, yes and, and no. no okay so right now our focus is on architecture engineering construction and then commercial real estate okay. we are going to be looking at other markets but that's just not where we're at right now in this moment. I got you. But there mm-hmm. are, I think we all have seen probably a lot of industries yeah. um, where you're like, really? I still have to do this the old way? Like, can't I have to call you? What? No, not I Not even call just you. I have to call you. It's like, why didn't you know to read your email? Yeah. Which I think that's more of like a literacy issue. But yeah. A, a, te- a digital <laughs> literacy. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I accept that. Um, <laughs> all right. Interesting. So then you said you guys are like a digital yeah. A, a digital platform, a mm-hmm. digital incubator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that what yeah. you said? Yeah. So what does that actually mean? So we have about 35 tech startups that are in the platform right now. They're all focused on, like I said, AEC, CRE, so construction tech, property tech, that kind of space. Yep. And we provide monthly, weekly, quarterly programming for them. So we're all in Slack and in Zoom and doing phone calls. It's super high touch. But because obviously startup founders need that, but we're not taking away from their time that they would be spent working on their business and they don't have to fly to Atlanta if they're not local and most of them aren't local. Right. So they're not flying in and out or even driving across Atlanta traffic. We know how bad that can be. Jesus. Uh, Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. Very cool. So um, I know also as part of uh, Shadow Ventures and all of that, you guys have a summit coming up Mm -hmm. in uh, the next couple of weeks. It's in September. September. And what's the date? September 17th and 18th. Okay. And we were, I sort of started out by saying there's this theme, you know, Mm -hmm. this idea in technology of creating cool stuff and then trying to find somebody who wants to use it versus like solving real problems. Right. So that's a little bit of what the theme of the conference is this this go around. And it's understanding. So our focus, kind of taking that a step back real quick, our focus at Shadow Ventures is are you solving a real problem? Yeah. Because there is a ton of technology. Like you guys remember the Snap Goggles? Like uh, yeah, that like, was might have been the dumbest thing ever. That is so stupid. No one used it. Like, well, because it's nobody wanted it. Why do you want, you know, and it's so, I, I think you find a lot of times people who are in the tech development bubble, they're like, this is a problem I have. And so everybody else has this problem and we're going to solve And then they don't think about product market fit right. and there's no market for the product. Right. But then on the flip side, you have people who work in corporate companies who are like, oh, my kid was talking about the AI. And you're like, sir, it's not the AI. It's not Jarvis. Um, it's not the AI. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like, I tell people all the time, everyone thinks that, like, AI is, like, Jarvis. Like, you know, with, like... It's, like, one, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. one kind of thing. It's a person yeah. is what they think it is, and that's not at all. And they're like, well, I need this in my business. And it's like, do you? How would you implement that? Yeah, what would you use it yeah. for? First of all... How is it going to make you more productive? What do you need it for? And then how would you actually implement that? Yeah. Because that's a business case challenge. That's, like, you looking at your business model and understanding how all of these components fit and maybe having to retool your business model a bit. So what we're doing is getting the people who are implementing technology and the people who create the technology to explain it all for the industry people. So they have this really deep understanding of what they need to do when they get back in their office. It's so interesting um, because it is sort of this whole idea of like looking at your business process and Mm -hmm. saying, you know, what's not working here. Yeah. I mean, you know, Look, let's be honest. If pencil and paper works for you and you're making plenty of money and nobody's complaining and you're not losing business or, you know, causing buildings to fall down or right. whatever the case may be, great. Then maybe you don't need any technology. Exactly. You know, it's it's it, you you should be putting the technology in place where there's a problem and right. there needs to be a fix. Right, right. Yeah. I had a whole conversation with a girl, um, a woman last week who runs a fashion business. And she and I were talking and she was telling me, well, is this fa- this tech thing, this industry, insert industry slash tech thing, is that real? Do you need that? And so she tells me about her business and I was like, look, 
you don't sell to that many people where AI would actually benefit your business right now. Right. So why would you waste time, effort, and energy on that? Right. You know, and it just was like her having someone who understands the space saying, no, it's not fake. Tech is not fake. It's a real thing. It will really solve problems in your business. But if you don't have a problem right now, why are you trying to put the cart before the horse? Like, what are you, you're going to spend a ton of time, energy, and money. Right. That's the big thing. It's a lot of money and right. you may not get a return. Right. Well, that's the there you go. That's, I think, the real key question. You you spend all this time, energy and money and then you have a cool thing to show everyone. But if you don't actually make money on it from it, if it doesn't save you money in some way, what's the point? Yeah. If yeah. it doesn't help you or your customer, you're just wasting time. Yeah, absolutely. You know? yeah. Uh, Anastasia Simon hanging out with us right now. She is managing director of Shadow Labs. They've got uh, the Shadow Summit coming up. Uh, in September, and uh, we're talking about sort of this idea that's going to be uh, woven throughout the conference mm-hmm. of sort of, you know, useful tech, if yes, you will. Yes, yes, yes. Right? It's your reality check. What is working and what doesn't work for you? Yeah. So, yeah, that's yeah. the whole vibe. One of the things I feel like that goes on in a lot of those industries, like you gave a really simple example by saying, like, somebody stole pencil and paper. Yeah. But I think in many cases, too, uh, probably in the building and, t- mm-hmm. uh, you know, an architectural and engineering world, as, as well as many others, there are some systems, but they're really antiquated. Yes. And so that's a whole other issue, right? Like, how Mm -hmm. do you know when it's time to move to something? Maybe it doesn't have to go all the way to AI or, you know, virtual reality or whatever, but that there's some sort of you know, okay, this is a legacy system. It's it's doing something for us. We're using it, but it's actually not the best thing. Yeah, so understanding how to evaluate your current processes. But then also, like you said, so some of it is that space is super fractured. And how do you connect some of the pieces so that from the beginning to the end of your project, you actually have that level of transparency? Yeah. You know, and so that's something super simple that does not rely on we have to do blockchain. No, maybe you don't. Right. Maybe you just have to make sure that you're getting all of your processes in the different systems that are bucketed to talk to each other in a way that makes sense for them. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of different ways of of looking at it. So uh, t- before I, I don't want to get off the topic, but I yeah. also do want to talk a little bit more about the summit because I know there's some really incredible speakers mm-hmm. um, from a variety of different worlds um, yes. and from all across the country, right? Yeah, that yeah, are yeah. coming in. So talk to me a little bit about who's going to be there. Oh gosh. So we have um, Michael Coles, founder of the Great American Cookie Company, which I'm excited for that. Is he bringing cookies? Everyone keeps asking that. <laughs> I really, like maybe I need to call his like PR team after this and be like, you guys. We it's need so to funny because we, we had him on the show a few yeah. months ago and I was like, where are the cookies, dude? Like, you know, come on. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. he laughed it off. He right. was good about it. But he he's, still needs to. Like, he's a good sport, but still where are the cookies? Where are the cookies, right. like, for real. Yeah. So yeah, so we have him who's going to be there. Um, we got uh, Kabir Barde from um, One Trust who's going to be there talking about how he built a billion dollar company because, you know, he just had their Series A. So yeah, it's going to be uh, like if I could go down the list of speakers, I would just tell people they'd have to go to the website because it's insane. It's a, a you know? large variety. It's, and they're really, again, from a lot of different walks. So yeah, there's yeah, some, yeah. Uh, I know there's some like uh, city management type of people. Mm-hmm. So you've got some public and some private, private sector, sort of yeah. Yeah, discussion that's going to be happening. Yeah. So I think it's going to be uh, a really uh, interesting, it's two days, yeah? Yeah, so it's two days. We're going to be right down the street at the uh, Woodruff Arts Center. And can people still get tickets? Yes, please get tickets. They right. are available uh, on Eventbrite, so you can go. I'll, I can give you guys the list. Okay, mm. we'll put the link on our show yeah, notes yeah. page at DanaBarrett.com. It's again the Shadow Summit, September 17th and 18th. Anastasia Simon, great to see you. Thanks Good for spending uh, some time with us. It is the Dana Barrett Show. Do not go anywhere. We'll be right back. Tech Tuesday on the Dana Barrett Show. It is Tech Tuesday. Hey, listen, uh, in some Tech Tuesday news, this is not brand new, but uh, a couple of days ago, I think this came out, uh, maybe the end of last week. Did you know that Apple finally released their new Apple credit card? It's like a fancy... I don't get it. I mean, I bring it up mostly because it's weird. So Apple uh, has launched this new Apple card, and they claim that it's like the biggest innovation in credit card since, you know, the beginning of credit cardness. Well, probably not. Probably since the chip, right? But they're saying it's like the, this big, you know, new innovative card. And so I was trying to understand what was so great about it. And I did a little bit of uh, reading up on their website about all of the features. And so, you know, one of the things that they sort of tout right from the top is that it is created by Apple, not a bank. But it's still a MasterCard for the record. But it's just not like, you know how your MasterCard will come from like Wells Fargo or your MasterCard from 
chase or whatever. So it's not a bank in the middle. But I don't really get that. I don't get why that's a huge advantage. Does that just mean Apple is acting like a bank? Is that what that means? Like Apple's lending you the money and charging you interest on it, and then you're paying Apple back? And does that, what is that? I don't really know what the advantage is there. I don't get it. Like, basically, you're still going to give me a credit limit, and you're still going to charge me interest, right? So, like, what does it matter to me if you're a product company or a bank? I think they need to do a better job of explaining that, because I don't, I don't really get it. Um, they say it's simple, it's transparent, and it's private. Uh, and they say it's sort of, it, it's sort of really um, coordinated with Apple Pay. But you can set up any credit card to work with Apple Pay. So, again, not sure I understand the advantage, but okay. Um, it, they also say it encourages you to pay less interest. I'm going to say that's a massive exaggeration. Um, I read about it, that piece of it. And essentially what they're saying is with your normal credit card, you've got your like 14% interest rate or whatever. And when you get your bill, it says, you know, $39 is your minimum payment or $100 is your minimum payment. Um but, you know, then it sort of tells you because of regulations that made them tell you this. If you um, just pay the minimum, you will owe X amount in X number of years. Right. So they're trying to let you know that, like, don't just pay the minimum payment. But on the other hand, they're encouraging you by making that the minimum, saying, like, you have to only pay this. And they're making the assumption, Apple is making the assumption that we're all so dumb that we just don't even realize that we should pay more than that. And I think that is not reality. I think most people know that if you can, you pay off the whole thing. And if you can pay more than the minimum, you do that. Because ultimately, you don't want to end up owing more and more and more. And if you've had a credit card for any length of time and ever looked at the statements, you see what's happening to your balance. <laughs> so I think most of us are actually smart enough to get that. But what they're saying is they will give you a calculation right on the spot. Like if you put in a certain amount, it'll tell you how much interest you're going to pay um, on the balance that's remaining. And you can sort of play around with the numbers and get it exactly how you want before so the, you make the payment. The innovative part of all of this is a different way to show you information? Yeah, it's more information, I guess. And it's like math on the fly. Okay, all right, all right. And in fairness, like calculating a daily interest rate like is is not easy to do. Like you couldn't just sit down and figure out how much compounding interest is going to be put on your money because it's not... At least for me, I'm not a mathlete, and I don't have a compounded interest calculator handy, so I don't know how to do that. So I guess that's good information. I don't know. You know, look, if you're a head and sand person like I tend to be sometimes, it's like when they put the calories on the menu. It's like, yeah, it's good. But do I really want to know? Like, I just wanted to eat the Cinnabon. I didn't really want to know that it was, like, my calories for an entire week. Like, you know, thanks, Apple. I really can only afford to pay the minimum. I didn't really want to know that it was going to put me in bankruptcy by the time I'm 60. But, like, whatever. It's fine. And then last but not least, and on top of all of that, and here's the kicker. They've made this card out of titanium because, you know, everybody's just been dying for one of those. Like, I must have a titanium credit card. I mean, I, mean, I will be honest. It sounds cool. Yeah. Except wait till you hear this. It's titanium, which means it scratches and scuffs really easily. So they're asking you not to put it in a leather wallet, not to put it in a wallet in a slot where another credit card already is, because that never happens to real people. It can't touch denim. Can't touch denim because denim might scratch it. So don't put it in your pocket. Oh, also make sure you don't put it in your pocket with keys um, or anything else. Like basically they want you to carry it around on like a red velvet pillow, <laughs> you know, and, like, as Nick pointed out, get your, like, museum-quality gloves out before you touch it. Um, this, you know, we were talking with Anastasia Simon from Shadow Labs about technology people don't really need. This is it. Here it is. Apple has created something that nobody cares about. Nobody needs and nobody understands why they would want it over any other credit card. Except that it's a pain in the neck to deal with it, and I'm going to have to, like, get a red wagon and put a red pillow in the red wagon to put the credit card on and take it with me everywhere so it doesn't get scratched. They got a new card with a higher limit to afford the butler that has to carry your Thank card you. around for also, you. Also, side note, have you ever cared if your credit card had a scuff on it? That's a big fat no. Um, it's wacky, people. Um, sometimes you got to love the tech geniuses. You just got to love it. It's the Dana Barrett Show. We've got a whole other hour for you. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Need an excuse to take a two-hour lunch? The Dana Barrett Show is on now. Live from the WGST studios in Atlanta, here's your host, Dana Barrett. 
So let's talk about the economy for a moment, because uh, I've got a couple stories uh, that I've been keeping my eye on. And I've been taking some flack over the last few weeks uh, from some folk that listen. First of all, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Even if you don't agree with me, you know, um, that's okay. That's what America's about. Like, we're allowed to not agree. Um, I will say this. I think we just had a caller earlier. Uh, we were about to change the subject, so we didn't uh, really get time to engage. But uh, there was a complaint that we were deliberately presenting misinformation. And that's not true. Like, the bottom line is, I'm not saying we're always right. We make mistakes. Sometimes we're wrong or maybe our source is wrong, but we never do it deliberately. We're not trying to sway people by fabricating stuff. We're just not. So, you know, you may not like what I have to say and you may not like the source I'm using. Like if I'm pulling something from The New York Times and you hate The New York Times, you have every right to hate The New York Times. But I'm not deliberately trying to lie to you. Just FYI. Side note, I've been uh, getting some flack on the economy stuff because I've been talking about uh, some various stories that are discussing economic indicators that imply a slowdown, possibly a recession, coming sometimes within the year we're hearing, sometimes within the next few years. And all of this is analysis, right? And today there are sort of two competing stories that caught my eye. One is based on actual sales figures, actual numbers, dollars and cents. And the other is based on a survey that has to do with how people feel about the economy. So let me break it down. One of the reports just out is the uh, National Home Price Index. This one is based solely on math. This is a number that is calculated based on the sales of homes in this country. And what they're saying is while home price growth is still happening, right? So the price of homes is still going up. The growth itself is decelerating. It's slowing. So that is a sign that even the lower mortgage rates that are out there are not really helping to boost up the housing market. Usually, lower interest rates help to keep the housing market growing strong. And it's not. It's slowing down. It's not earth-shattering. It's not the end of the world. But it is an indicator that the economy is slowing somewhat. In fact, our price growth has uh, now been slowing for approximately, I think it's 15 months. And this is the longest period of decelerated growth right? So a slowing in growth since the 2008 housing crash. That is pure math. I'm not making this up. I'm just reading a source from the Wall Street Journal owned by Rupert Murdoch. That is a, that is a, a possible indicator of a slowing economy. Does it mean the end of the world is coming? No. Um, should we all like get gold and go hide in you know our bathroom closet until this is all over? No. Uh, but it is a fully mathed out calculation that's been made for many, many years. It's not a new survey conducted by some wackadoodle in their basement. It's a real thing. And it's just, and again, it's not saying growth is, it's not saying uh, the prices are dropping. It's just saying growth is slowing. So I just want to be really clear about what we're saying here. Sometimes when you hear a, a number is down, you just hear that top line information and you automatically in your head say, oh, sales are down. No, sales are not down, but this, the growth is less. Okay, now let's move to the uh, opinion sort of related survey that I was referring to, and that is the positive information. Americans' outlook on the current economy is the brightest it's been in 19 years. This is a, an assessment of the U.S. consumers. So, a survey is done to ask consumers how they feel about the economy. And they feel good. <laughs> Just want to let you know. So that comes from what is called the Conference Board's Present Situation Index. And uh, they're saying part of the reason is that, wait for it, this is an opinion based on an opinion, consumer confidence contracted less than expected. We thought consumers were going to lose confidence, but they didn't. They still felt positive. So now when we put our index together, we see an even brighter outlook of people's opinions. Why is it that we in this country, maybe in the world, but certainly in this country, base so much of our decision-making 
on some stupid statistics that a company puts together and sells to us. And we buy it like it is water on a desert island. We're like, oh, the economy's great because consumers feel good about it. I am one of those consumers. I must feel good. Sold. I'm going to go buy more stuff. It's got to be some some ingrained like correlation causation thing that we've been taught, right? Over time, like the companies said, well, if X thing looks good, then we'll make more money. And for a while it was. So we believed them that that's the truth. Like it's also this. It's also like, OK, I'm going to give a restaurant based example now. So, you know, you're out on a weekend night and you're in a part of town that you don't normally go to and you didn't make reservations in advance. And so you're like looking for a place to eat. And you walk down a block and you see a place that's super crowded and you're like, oh, that must be good. And then you walk past another place and it's kind of half empty and you're like, oh, that must be bad. Like there's just this automatic assumption that the crowd knows and the crowd must be right. And so I'm going to go wherever the crowd goes because the crowd must know. So I'm going to wait in line for 45 minutes to go to the crowded place rather than walking into the empty place and eating right now when I'm hungry. Because it seems like everybody likes the other one better. It's funny that you make that correlation because you're spot on. Because how many times have you done that? Because I know I've done that. I've walked into a place and been like, there's no one in here. That's weird. Right. I've gone to a place and sat in an hour line and sat down and ate the food and paid too much and gone, it wasn't that good. Right. (laughs) After all that, turns out it was just the new place that everybody wanted to try because it was new. But it wasn't any better than the old place, who, by the way, was only empty because everybody was over trying the new place. But it's actually really good. And next week, they're all going to be back at the old place. I mean, we are just a this is our herd mentality. And these, you know, polling companies and these survey companies and these various indexes that are put together, often not by people who have your best interest at heart. Okay, sometimes you don't even know who these organizations are that are putting them together. Look. Sometimes they're totally, you know, nonpartisan information gatherers, and that's really all they're trying to do. But the problem, I think, is that the media presents these things as if they are solid fact. Point, uh, case in point, I was uh, watching CNN this morning, and they were talking about the new Monmouth poll, I think it was, uh, about the 2020 candidates. And they were talking about the fact that it looks very much now like Joe Biden, uh, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders are in a dead heat. And uh, the only other person even in, in, you know, in sight is Kamala Harris, who's still significantly behind the three of them. But if you really listened, first of all, CNN loves that kind of stuff. And they went on and on and on uh, analyzing this. And what does it mean? And what does it mean for Warren? And what does it mean for Sanders? And what does it mean for Biden? And, you know, what does it mean for Trump? And unbelievable. It was like painful to watch. But. Then they sort of mention, oh, yeah, well, you know what? It has a 6% margin of error on either side, which means Joe Biden could be exactly where he was in the bigger polls that happened weeks ago, which is like 12 points ahead, right? It could be. If it's six points on either side and his number is six points low and the other people's numbers, or, or, yeah, and the other people's are six points high, it could be a 12-point spread to Joe Biden and anybody else. Okay. Also, the Monmouth poll only surveyed 298 people. 200. 98 people. Do you know how many people there are in this country? <laughs> More than that in millions, right? There 370 you go. or so? Right? Yeah, right. Yeah. 370 something million. <laughs> and 300 people have taken a poll, and somehow they're the right 300 people. So we now know how the rest of the country feels. For realsies? And we all buy it. It's like we all are like, oh, yeah, uh huh, new poll. Yep. That's what I feel. So I'm just going to forget about all the other candidates. And I know there's a debate coming up. I don't really care because the poll says one of these three is going to win. So. And I go back to the same thing I, I go back to every time we talk about this. When is the last time you answered a political poll? Because I never have. Not once. Pretty sure my daughter, who is a adult millennial, never has answered a poll. You yeah. said once, nope. right, at your house? Or your mom no, did my once? my mom has once in the entire time yeah. that I have been alive. Right, once. Yeah. Uh, part of the way that, that polls are conducted is via landline telephone. Mostly, actually. Right. Yes. Do you know who doesn't have those? 
Mm, Everybody? Most people. <laughs> yeah. Most people don't have those. And of the people that have them, do you know how many people don't answer them? The rest of them? Right. Most people. <laughs> so the people that are answering the phone on their landline are, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it, really old and really bored. Because even when I had it, the last time I had a landline, it was over 10 years ago, and I didn't answer it. Because it was always a telemarketer. Right. Right. So maybe I was polled and I just didn't know because as soon as I heard like a click over to a telemarketer of some kind, I hung up the phone. So just for example, uh, you said it was how many 300 something people or 200 something people? I believe so. Mammoth poll? Yeah. Okay. So there's also, I pulled up Real Clear Politics because they have all of the polls pulled up. Uh, There's an Emerson poll. That has Biden at 31, Sanders at 24, Warren at 15. That one was 697 people. And then there's one from Politico that has Biden 13 points ahead that surveyed people just in Nevada and New Hampshire. What? And there's like 700 of those. But see, and that's 13 points ahead for Biden, seven points ahead for Biden. And then now we're talking about the mom that's a tie. This is all just. It's nonsense. What? It's nonsense. And I'm just sorry, but like, why? We have to stop. And, And really, I blame. Uh, in large part, the media for buying into this garbage because they have nothing else to talk about. Seriously? You can't find something else? But even if you have to talk about this, like I told you before we came on on for hour two, was we have... We have the internet, man. I, what? Like, why can't what, What's yeah, that? the interwebs? You know, oh, the thingy, the clicky, clicky on the computer. And oh, the, that thing. You know, you email in your Facebook. Oh, yeah, I got it. <laughs> but come on. And we can't do polls that way where only allows an IP address to ping one time or something like that to at least get a better idea. Right. I mean, this is the, it's a very fair point. And you also made the point that we have had American Idol for however many, and we <laughs> millions of people would dial in. Now, granted, you could call more than once and you, one person could call from multiple phones. But so what? There's your margin of error. But at least you have a sampling of millions of votes instead of, you know, instead of, you know, 300 people. Right. You could run a commercial on the big cable and network news stations and say, call this number and each phone number gets one vote. And you pick your Democratic candidate or right. whatever, and you would have a way more accurate representation of what America thinks. Right. And like I said, arguably, somebody could have more than one phone, um, and they okay. could call multiple times. But again, like, so? So you get a few people that decide, like, they really are passionate about this and want to try to sway the poll. And, you know, they still they have two phones. Like, how many phones are you going to – you know what I mean? It's crazy. I just ask everybody to take a giant step back. Um, when it comes to any of this, whether it's your your view of the economy, uh, whether or not a recession is coming, who is the right person uh, to, to stand behind for uh, the president, whatever it is, like if you're just basing it on a survey or a poll uh, or the reporting of said survey or poll on your favorite news station, you know, fill in the news station here, uh, you really should take a step back and ask for, you know, clarification on what that poll actually asked, how many people it asked, who they were. Uh, because it's just, it's just, it's nonsense. It's just such nonsense. If we could actually focus on real things that are happening instead of our speculation on what might happen or how we feel about what's happening, I think we'd be a lot better off. On that note, there are real fires burning in the Amazon. Uh, We're going to talk about that with NBC News correspondent Michael Bauer right after this. Everybody get up. Now back to the Dana Barrett Show here on WGST. All right, we are back, and we have been focusing all month long on the topic of diversity and inclusion. Uh, Thanks to our partners, uh, Sage, they put together a really comprehensive report on the topic. We've uh, had a launch for that report all the way back in June, and ever since then we've sort of been digging into the topic here on the show. Uh, We've had a variety of different experts on, and joining me right now is Gabrielle Claiborne. She is the co-founder and CEO of Transformation Journeys worldwide. Welcome. Thank you, Dana. Thank you for having me. It is absolutely a pleasure uh, to have you. And so um, before we get into the conversation uh, about diversity and inclusion as it relates to uh, the trans community um, right. and non-binary, is that what you say? Right, right. Um, I want to I learn a little bit more about your background and the organization and how you got started working on this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I, I came out and I use that term figuratively because that's that's what LGBTQ individuals use when uh, we embrace our truth as who we really are. Yeah. In 2010. So this set me on a course of finding what was mine to do. 
And early on in my transition, there were a number of different vocational iterations that I embraced. But over the course of my transition, I realized that there were many trans and non-binary individuals in the community that experience very significant amounts of discrimination, especially in the workplace. So, you know, drawing from my 30-plus year Thirty plus year experience in uh, as an entrepreneur and a business owner, I said, you know, I'm going to start a business and advocate for my trans and non-binary uh, siblings on their behalf in the workplace. So, uh, going on five years ago, uh, my business partner and I co-founded Transformation Journeys Worldwide. And so that is so you are sort of working with companies, consulting with them to try to help them. Uh, make the workplace inclusive and comfortable for trans and non-binary folk. Absolutely. I mean, to be honest with you, we help a myriad of organizations. Our bread and butter is corporate America. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of, you know, the the trans and non-binary experience touches every aspect of an individual's life. It touches their spiritual community. It touches their their, uh, vocation. It touches, you know, other organizations that they belong to. So these organizations are saying, you know, we want to do the right thing, but we really don't know how to start that conversation. Can you help us? Well, I think it's a really, um, I mean, it's really hard, I think, for people to have conversations about anything that they don't really know or fully understand. Um, and, you know, I'm, you know, some trans uh, people are very uh, noticeable and some you probably right. never even know. Right. right? right. So I, I suspect that there are a variety of different challenges across the board when there, you're yes, uh, a member of the trans community. So talk to me a little bit about sort of some of the workplace challenges. Is it hiring? Is it being comfortable on teams? Is it being included? What are the issues that it's are all impa- the above. Okay. Right. I'm on this, it. This is not a one- 60 to 90 minute conversation. Yeah, it's you not know? even a 10 minute radio segment. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we actually approach this inclusive workplace culture, creating this inclusive workplace culture from a holistic perspective, meaning that while it's important to have that initial conversation around maybe some foundational understanding of the trans and non binary experience, it's also important to look at things like policy. It's important to have education. Uh, we look at, you know, community engagement. We look at facilities. So there are, are a number of landmarks along this journey of creating an inclusive workplace culture. You know, a lot of our clients are uh, are ready to have this conversation. They're reaching out to this, us, and they're actually, um, they've made some progress with policies. Yeah. They're scoring, they've got good scores on the HRC CEI, Corporate Quality Index, yet they're saying we're just, Trying, we just want to make sure that we're not missing any stones that we're not turning over to make sure that we're doing a comprehensive look at this. So right. they invite us in to create some educational conversations around, you know, why why is it just not policies? You know, right? You know, what why else is, is it? Why is it just not facilities? Why is it not just community engagement? Yeah. So we kind of help them see these things. Uh, Gabrielle Claiborne hanging out with us right now. Uh, we're talking about diversity and inclusion in particular uh, in the trans community. Uh, she is co-founder and CEO of Transformation Journeys Worldwide. And we're sort of talking about it specifically about the workplace. But I think you make an important point that it goes way beyond its totally. all aspects. Yes. Do you feel like you know, you're talking you're being really positive right now, which I appreciate. OK. Uh, and you're talking about companies that are, you know, sort of willing to take this uh, journey with you and right. want to learn and, and all of those things. But are you experiencing resistance? Are you getting companies or just individuals within companies that are sort of like, I don't yeah. get it. I'm not interested in this. What's this craziness? Whatever. Yeah. Yep. What, what is that like for well, you? A lot, a lot of our time is spent helping our clients understand what they don't know that they don't know. Yes. So allowing them. Uh, to create kind of a safe space, I, I like to encourage and invite folks to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. Okay. Because that's when you really start learning. You being, you know, you're you're willing to be vulnerable and make mistakes in the spirit of learning how to be more inclusive. Right. Yeah. So, so creating those those safe space where people can ask questions because questions is where people really learn yeah and also make mistakes you know like I said in the spirit of wanting to become more inclusive and to support trans and non-binary individuals well I think you know look you're obviously choosing uh not not just to be out as you called it but to really be out and out because invisible invisible well, yeah. and you're putting yourself on the front lines every right. day essentially saying go ahead and ask me the weird questions right. because right. and that's not easy to do 
And so I, I also just wonder about others in the trans community. Do you feel like everybody who is, uh, look, you can't group everybody together and I get right. that. But overall, do you feel like the community is willing to answer the difficult questions or do they sort of just, some of them just want to be left alone to live their lives? Both and. You know, I'm getting all of this right, exactly. man. I'm nailing it today. Right. So, you know, some some trans individuals uh, live stealth lives. Yeah. You know, you never, you may never know someone is right. trans, right? Right. And, and that is their prerogative. That is their, they elect to be, be stealth is meaning that they pass. Right. right? They just don't, they don't explain. They just are who they are and they don't give anybody an explanation. You can't tell if they're cisgender or transgender. Right. Okay. And if you don't know those terms, look them up. You there can you Google. go. Okay. But, but then there are other trans people who want to advocate for not only themselves, but for others who may not have the voice. Yeah. Or the the opportunity, the privilege to be in that space to advocate for the community. So it's all over the board. But what we encourage our clients to consider is that, you know, while some trans and non-binary individuals that may already be in the workplace may be willing to step up and have a conversation, you can't place the educational burden on them to educate the whole workplace Yes, on, that's fair. On an inclusive workplace that's culture, right. right? Yeah. So it's kind of a delicate balance. You, you you kind of check in and say, okay, are you willing to you know engage in this? And if so, fine. If not, that's fine too. There's third party consultants like us that do this kind of work. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. Um, I I don't want to run out of time totally, but I do want to ask you sort of about the news cycle and sort of the the national topics around. Um, being trans, because right. it feels like whenever we um, hear a big, you know, usually somewhat devastating news story about the trans community, you know. And that's what, all we've heard, by the way, lately. I know. That's right. why I'm saying it that way. And right. it, it breaks my heart. But I because I feel I feel like a lot of us feel powerless to do anything right, right. Uh, about it. But it always it t- tends to be around the transition itself, the right. process of transitioning and less about later. Right. Um, is that something you're dealing with with workplaces as well? Absolutely. I mean, it's called transitioning in the workplace, right? Right. <clears throat> but what a lot of individuals, because they don't understand the width, breadth, and depth of the trans experience, they're placing all their focus on the physical aspects of the transitioning process. And that is a very aspect of the overall transition process, yeah. right? Yeah. So to help them understand and, and invite them to look at the greater width, breadth, and depth of what this experience, how it shows up, right? Yeah, yeah. Because we say when you've heard one trans person story, you've heard one trans person story. Yeah. There's, there's some very unique and uh, common themes that we all go through. But they're all unique in how we how we experience them, how they unfold in our life. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think that I think you're saying something that we should know. That's really obvious. Right. But then also, still, we need to be reminded of that. Exactly. And I think that's true with any group, right? right. Whether Absolutely. it's a racial story, whether it's a you know a, a loss of a child story, whether it's a trans story, a gender story, whatever it is. Right. And I think we do tend to forget that that yeah. as much as we need to, our group needs to be included. We as individuals also need to be absolutely included, and we are all individuals. So uh, obviously, you've got a lot of work still ahead of you, Gabrielle. Yes, but thank you so much for the work you're doing and for uh, coming in to talk to us about it. Uh, that again was Gabrielle Claiborne. The organization again is Transformation Journeys Worldwide. We'll post a link to it on our show notes page at DanaBarrett.com. Um, And another big thanks to Sage for partnering with us on this important conversation. Thank you very much. Tech Tuesday on the Dana Barrett Show. You know, uh, we were talking earlier in the show um, about companies behaving ethically and doing the right thing. We were talking about it as it relates to uh, Johnson & Johnson and this uh, landmark case in which they were um, found liable by a judge for almost half a billion, more than half a billion dollars. Uh, as it relates to uh, opioids. But I want to bring this up under the Tech Tuesday banner as well, because there's a new story out uh, about Amazon reportedly listing thousands of unsafe or banned products for sale on their website. And part of the reason, of course, that this happens is because Amazon doesn't control a lot of what is being sold. It's all there's a you know, it started out that Amazon was the seller um, but now they are in many ways the middleman. And so there are many, many, many third-party sellers, some reputable, huge companies that you've heard of, and some some guy in his basement. And people with from all parts of the world, and they're doing all different kinds of things with all different uh, motivations. 
And so some may be up there because people just didn't know that they weren't allowed to sell that. But the bottom line is they don't have a person or a team of people or even a department full of people that whose job it is to verify all the products. It's all done by, well, wait for it, technology. It's all done by, you know, one of them, their algorithms. And uh, it's not working. So once again, we have a situation where it's the wild, wild west of the interwebs. And we, you know, are crying out that Amazon and Facebook should pay taxes, should pay more money into the cities where they are, shouldn't get all these tax credits and benefits, and should do the right thing. But we're not really doing anything to make them do the right thing. And we are just throwing tax credits at them hand over fist. And so, you know, look, I don't have an easy fix here, but there should be a punishment for that. They should be forced to fix their system so that people cannot easily buy a product that you could also not buy at the local CVS, right, or the local Target on the shelf because it's, you know, illegal or banned or unsafe uh, or whatever, and so we continue to let these tech companies take a pass. Um, and we continue to bring them in and have them sit in front of senators and congresspeople and answer a bunch of questions, and then nothing ever happens. And so uh, I think it's time it's time for a little bit of a change there. Um, Amazon, you know, I keep uh, touting our, our bizography podcast because uh, things are changing in the world of the Dana Barrett show and the Nick Bean Dana Barrett show. <laughs> I got to include you in this, Nick. Sorry. Can I blame it on you? No, I won't do that. I don't blame this one on me. Hilarious. Uh, but listen, I mentioned this yesterday at the end of the show. I'll mention it again now. Uh, if you're a longtime listener of our show from the old station and, and or just from here on WGST, we very much appreciate you. And we want to let you know that the show uh, is coming to an end this Friday. We'll be our last day on the air here at WGST. But please tune into our podcast. Uh, if you need more details on that, go to bizography.show. That's the website for it. Or just search for bizography anywhere you get your podcasts. We're about, I think we're this week, the eighth episode, I believe, drops. They drop once a week on Wednesdays and they are uh, not political. They are just about uh, iconic companies and their histories, kind of like the biographies of iconic companies. And talking about Amazon sort of made me think about that in that we probably won't ever cover a company like Amazon because there's so many stories already out there. Everybody knows Jeff Bezos's history and the history of Amazon. We're actually trying to cover um, the companies that you sort of know and love, but really maybe have forgotten their backstory or maybe never knew it. Um, some are newer, some are older, some are doing great still, and some are on the struggle bus to oopsie town, you know? <laughs> um, and so anyway, we've got that. We've also got a potential two or three other podcasts that we're pitching uh, that are in the works. So lots to talk about there. And I keep getting to this with like a minute left in the in the show every day. But we run out of time, so we have a lot of important things to talk about. Um, I'm also partly uh, leaving the airwaves because I am seriously uh, considering a run for Congress. So uh, that decision will be made by the end of September. If you want to stay tuned to, you know, all things Dana Barrett and whatever is next, I just talked about myself in the third person. <laughs> uh, just go to my website, danabarrett.com. There's a sign up on there for our mailing list or go to Facebook uh, or Instagram or LinkedIn even uh, or Twitter and follow uh, me. It's the Dana Barrett. And that's my uh, Facebook. That's my social handle everywhere. So just go search for me there and sign up and I will keep you all tuned to all of our next uh, ventures. I'm not letting Nick go. It's going to be the, the Dana and Nick team for a while. She's dragging me along. That's right. So stay tuned for all of that. And in the meantime, we are out of time today. It has been the Dana Barrett Show, and it will be again tomorrow. We'll see you then. Follow Dana on Facebook and Twitter at The Dana Barrett. And be sure to tune in to The Dana Barrett Show weekdays from noon to 2, right here on Talk Radio 640 WGST and streaming live on the iHeartRadio app.